Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. The tools in the toolbox are, are largely exhausted. I mean, I, I feel really inadequate these days when people say, what can I do? And I have to say, the impact that you will have is little. I wish it was more. We simply cannot do more with what we have right now. So that's householders, that's the advocacy services on the front line, that's health services. Everybody is feeling the squeeze tighter and tighter, nobody more so than householders. Hello and welcome to Local Zero. Today, we'll be talking about the role of energy advocacy in delivering a just net zero transition. But before we get stuck into our discussion today, look who has decided to grace us with their presence after all these months. It's Local Zero's one and only Fraser Stewart. Fraser, how is it going? Oh, angry and amazing as ever, Matt. Thank you very much. And it's a big, big episode that we've got today. In the midst of an energy crisis that risks plunging millions into fuel and wider poverty, energy advocacy services are providing crucial advice and support for people who desperately need it as bills soar across the country. Yeah, so we'll be chatting with two people leading the fight in this area. First up is Fraser Scott, the CEO of Fuel Poverty Campaign Group Energy Action Scotland. And we'll also be joined by Dr. Danielle Butler, who is a Senior Research and Policy Officer for Fuel Poverty Charity National Energy. Action. On top of that, we'll be hearing from two people doing amazing work at the coalface on this in our Glasgow's South Side with longtime friends of the show, South Seeds. As always, you can reach out to us at our dedicated Twitter handle. If you haven't already, go find and follow us at Local Zero Pod to get involved with discussions over there. Also, email us at localzeropod at gmail.com if you want to share some long thoughts. So, Fraser, you're back. Where have you been? <laughs> I've been here, been there. I've been, uh, uh, been east and west. and uh, No, I've just been incredibly busy. I've been trying desperately to, to finish my PhD, which is no further forwards than I think the last time I was on Local Zero. Okay. But yeah, lots of stuff in between happening, lots of exciting things. How have you been, Matt? 
Well, fine. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we've been holding fort without you. Future of fiction's taking a bit of a backseat. Yeah, it's been it's been quite poor, to be honest. I think everyone it keeps has. Telling. Yes, uh, the <laughs> ratings have dropped like a stone, Fraser, in your absence. So hence why we've brought you back in. Uh, no, it's been good, but obviously, you know, we've we've missed having having the, the third party, um, and obviously, you know, today, uh, right up your street, and you've written, uh, recorded, uh, video audio, everything on this subject. This is your bag, which is all about energy advocacy and tackling fuel poverty. And we're recording on the day today, as we record this, 1st of April. This is the day after energy meter reading day. Today's D-Day. This is when the bills go up and the price cap changes. This is it. This is the the moment that will determine how people get through the next few months as prices go up. It's also energy advocacy. It's not, not just something that I care about, but I think it's it's something that we aren't talking enough about in this sort of puzzle for resolving the energy crisis and for, for wider net zero as well. We talk a lot about things like financial support that people need now. That's correct. People need support just now. We talk a lot about retrofit. Also correct. We talk a lot about renewables. But piecing all of this together, getting into communities who desperately need it to link people up with policies, link people up with support and support people more generally are energy advocacy services who are doing amazing work on a day-to-day basis in communities on this front. So I've been asked this question a number of times when I've talked about this. How do you define energy advocacy? What is it? Who is an energy advocate? How would you define that? I think what we're talking about here are the more professionalized organizations and services. So we're talking about whether that's citizens advice who have, you know, their, their energy arm there, or someone like a South Seeds who are doing work in communities at a local level. We're talking about people who provide advice for folk who are struggling with their energy bills, with their energy consumption, whatever it might be on that side of things. And that then help people to find support to uh, bring their bills down, make their homes more energy efficient, whatever that support is. And those numbers, Fraser, people who are looking for these advocacy services, these support services, are going up at a frightening pace. So we've just seen, in fact, one of the groups that we're talking about is is National Energy Action. So, you know, their, their strapline, Action for Warm Homes, piece came out today um, suggesting that if energy bills do, this is the average dual fuel energy bill does rise up to £3,000. And remember... Way back, you know, in autumn time, we were looking at dual fuel bills around the 1,200, 1,300 mark. If they climb to 3,000, they are expecting 8.5 million UK homes to be in fuel poverty, which is roughly one in three. One in three. Uh, frightening stuff. And so these advocacy services are no longer niche. I mean, they'll be mainstream, right? Yeah, they'll, they'll be essential services. And we'll, we'll hear from, from guests today and from South Seeds today that the pressure that's been put on these services already, we've not hit £3,000 on a dual fuel bill yet, but already these these services are struggling to, to match the demand. And not just energy advocacy services, although that's what the episode's about today, but mutual aid, food poverty networks, all these different people are really, really struggling with the cost of living, which is kind of underpinned by the, the energy bills crisis. I think the other side of this as well, Matt, is that Demand for energy advocacy is going up and up and up because there's a wider context here. And I think a lot of people who maybe think, okay, just now I might be okay with with a, a slight increase in bills. Maybe I'm not at the, the very worst off. But that, as the, the prices go up, that very, very quickly starts to erode for people, that comfortability. One in three, a third of the population is a huge, huge amount of people. So if you have services already feeling a little bit overwhelmed, as you get to that stage, people who maybe never thought they would need help are going to start needing it as well very quickly. 
and we'll, we'll hear more from uh, representatives at South Seeds and obviously other advocacy agencies. But I'm a trustee at South Seeds. Um, I, I'm able to see firsthand, you know, what's happening there. And I know for a fact we've got many people coming in before the price cap rise hit who were already feeling the squeeze. And when I say feeling the squeeze, I mean unable to pay their energy bills or other bills and having to make these tough decisions. People who weren't cooking their food, you know, eating hot food for the week. People who were going from two or three, you know, baths or showers a week down to one. Other folk who were, you know, looking to disconnect from the gas grid. It is shocking even before the price cap rises. So I think we are in fundamentally uncharted territory now. I, I am surprised about the scale of help that we've been hearing from government, given the scale of the challenge that we're facing. So I know you, you had a blog out just a few days ago, Fraser, outlining some of the things that we might do going forward. So I just wondered whether you could maybe quickly capture some of the key points from that, reflecting upon some of the, the support that we've, we've heard announced over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, so there are, there are a few... A few key things that we that, that we're always talking about, but before I do that, I think one thing is just a, a quick thing on on advocacy services that I think is really important, and it's you've just outlined it perfectly there. Is that these are the the groups and organisations who are hearing firsthand the problems that people are facing and exactly what they're going through. They are very much the front line, the coal face, the the people who who have this experience and who are hearing people's sometimes horrifying stories. Um, which is another reason I think they're so, so crucial to include within the process of any support that we're designing and any wider rollout to net zero to make sure that people aren't worse off as well. So I think that's an important thing. There's such a critical part of the process. Yeah. In terms of the blog that I wrote, the, the thing that I put out, it outlined, basically we, we have three key sort of ideas that are batting around for how we get out of the energy crisis. All stuff that our listeners are, are going to know about, I'm sure. So the first one, provide immediate financial support to people who need it right now, including yep. reinstating the uplift to universal credit. That's something that we can do. So it's kind of alle alleviating the harm that's already been done rather than preventing it, just, yeah. just trying to soften the blow. That's it. Make it so that people aren't having to get into the debt in the first place at this moment in time. Because if you get into debt, you start a spiral of debt and arrears. That doesn't become an energy problem. That then becomes a a massive social crisis with lots of different faces to it. Yeah. So provide immediate financial support to people who need it now. We can do it. We're an extremely wealthy country. There's no reason we shouldn't be doing it. It's a political choice. We can get it done. Second thing, retrofit. You're a big a big advocate for this as well, Matt. Retrofit energy efficiency. Mm -hmm. Cheapest energy is the energy that you don't use. Quite right. Reduce demand within, within the household, um, which also has a knock-on to reducing bills, to improving health, yeah. reducing emissions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Another, not necessarily low, low cost, but low-ish cost thing that we should have been doing for time, but that we can still do with the right effort. Third thing is this mass rollout of domestic renewables. You create a, a massive domestic supply, ideally with community benefit built into it, with mm. fuel poverty funding built into it as well. Capture as much of the economic benefit as well as the, the energy benefit and wean yourself off gas altogether, which is becoming volatile, expensive, on top of being a planet-busting yeah. um, thing. So these are the three things. We know we need to do them pretty much in that order, I would say. Some of them will happen in tandem. Okay. The final thing is a discussion that we need to have, a bigger discussion, and that is what are we doing at all with energy? Who is it for and what is it for? Mm. So energy, as we know, as listeners to Local Zero will know, as, as we know, as people who, who work at the sort of nexus of innovation, society, and energy, you can do so much with the energy system, right? You can 
however you want to do it, you can create tons of community benefit, you can improve health, social capital, you can create jobs, you can reduce poverty, fuel poverty, wider poverty, yeah. uh, create new revenue streams for, for local communities. If you want to do it at a local level, you can do tons and tons and tons with energy. It's a massively transformative thing. Right now, we are operating firmly within a kind of market-driven, growth-driven, profit-driven model of energy especially since the sort of 80s and 90s with the privatisation of, of the energy sector. And then liberalisation. Yeah. yeah, people have a lot of different opinions on that. I understand it. But right now we're effectively satisfying investor profit margins and return on investment before anything else. You shouldn't really have a situation in a country like the UK, in Scotland, the UK, where you have such a huge capacity for renewables and so much renewables already happening, but such huge capacity for renewables mm. and record numbers of people living in fuel poverty all at the same time. While energy companies, fossil fuel companies make record profits as well, right? Yeah. We, yeah. we shouldn't have that in 2022 in a country like the UK. So we really need to reckon with, is the energy model working? No, it's failing before our eyes, plunging people into poverty. And, and, and you look at the kind of free market mentality of switching from one company to another to solve particular issues in terms of if your energy bill's too high, the mantra was until about six months ago, switch. Yeah. Now we're being told not to switch. Yeah. What do we have? What what can you realistically do? It doesn't doesn't exactly speak to a healthy a healthy marketplace, right? This is it. This is it. And th there have been criticisms leveled at the energy system for the last 30 years about how competitive or free market it really is, given the, the, the dominance of, you know, the big six, seven, depending on who you see as the disruptors at the time. But it's, that's like two questions. Is the energy market working for people as it should be just now? No, it's failing before our eyes. Second question, can we do it better than we do it now? Absolutely, yes. And I think even the most hardened right winger would agree with that. It's not working as it should just now. We can do so much more with it if we're willing to reckon with what and who it's for. And I would argue, if you let me be lefty for a second, put people in planet at the heart of that, communities, at the heart of, of what the energy system should be about. That doesn't need to stifle innovation. In fact, we can put innovation to use actively against the things that are happening just now. Yeah. But we really need to reckon with what the energy market does. One of the, the mechanisms that's being used a lot by energy advocacy services, including Saudis, who we'll hear from in a moment, is the energy redress scheme. Now, the energy redress scheme is there as a fund there to help people who are, are unable to pay their bills and to, and to provide some, some emergency relief. That fund itself is generated from uh, payments from energy companies who who have breached rules you know they, they have been fined so that money is from a marketplace i mean so the, you could argue the regulators doing its job it's calling these companies to account but then it's kind of being it's it's a market market failures trying to address other market failures so it, it's this it's this odd kind of circular process that we're going through so Listen, I, I, we don't profess to have all the answers, but we what, are certainly... What? Of course we have looks, all the Looks broken. Or maybe you do. Maybe you do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I do encourage people to read the blog. But um, listen, we ought to speak to some people who probably do have um, answers, and they are very much at the coalface, excuse the pun, in terms of delivering support to those in most need. So I think first up are two representatives from South Seeds, Poppy and Agnes. Uh, I work with them, as I said, as a, as a trustee. And South Seeds is a community environmental charity, did a lot of work around energy, and it's a local hub for a broad range of community and sustainability support. So we're going to bring them in and hear a little bit more about the challenges they're hearing from the community and what they're doing to try and help. My name is Agnes. I'm an energy officer at South Seeds. I'm Poppy, and I'm also an energy officer at South Seeds. 
welcome Poppy and Agnes. We are in the back room of South Seeds offices. We're in the tool library. So we are surrounded by power drills, sanders, uh, you name it, it is here. This is where um, we typically rent out key items to the community who are looking to do work. And much of that work at the moment is looking to retrofit homes because we are unfortunately in the midst of the energy crisis. And this brings us neatly onto the role that you both play at Southseed. So as energy officers, your roles are varied, but also you've become increasingly busy of late trying to help the community. So Poppy, I wonder if we can begin with with you just to outline what is an energy officer at Southseed and what do you do? Um, so we're here to provide energy advice and assistance to people that live within the G42 and G41 postcode. So we provide energy advice on how to, people can keep their electric and gas bills down. And we're also here to help provide advocacy um, help with the energy companies. So whether that's a complaint or setting up an account when they've moved into a property, we can help them with that. And we do also help with um, financial Aid, yeah, yeah, support. So we have sort of prepayment support and we also can help people apply for some hardship funding if they have debt. Okay. So Agnes, anything you'd like to, to add to that in terms of what the, the day job involves and I guess also how your role has changed over the last few months? Because you began six or seven months ago in a very different world. So how has the role evolved? We've just become increasingly busy is, is one of the big things. When we started, both of us, about half a year ago, I would say usually the wait time for an appointment would be about a week, depending how busy we were. And right now, we're sort of nearing a three-week wow. wait time for appointments. It's quite difficult because we really want to have enough time to really sit down and talk to people. Often when they come in with what seems like a simple problem, it turns out that there are other issues underlying mm -hmm. that we then can find out about and then hopefully fix, which is what we do a lot of the yeah. time. So we really need, we really value that time with clients. But then at the same time, more and more people have emergencies mm -hmm. and they have really, really urgent problems. They might be off supply. They might have no way of topping up the meters so for them at that point a, a three-week wait will feel like forever yeah not possible yeah. And, and, it'll, and that will cause a lot of harm as well that wait time so we're sort of balancing between honoring people's appointments and really giving that time but at the same time finding a way to help people who just show up at our door mm. without an appointment asking for help and and that's a really big challenge what is underlying that inability to pay bills? What are you hearing from the community? With the energy bills, we experience already people not being able to afford topping up their meters or not being able to afford their direct debit. Um, so a lot of people are very scared and anxious. For example, I had a client earlier today, actually, and he had some debt that he had built up over the pandemic and we managed to get that debt cleared and so his direct debit going forward is set at a certain amount but I told him you know the prices are going up on the 1st of April so likely your direct debit will go up with that and he said I just don't think I can afford that I think I'll need to get my gas capped um, literally turn it off turn it off yeah and so we're going to book an appointment and go all over all the options he has before he does that, make that decision for getting the gas capped. But I mean, I think that shows how extremely mm. worried people are about the prices increasing. Is that in part 
and maybe we're getting a bit too detailed, but what I've heard a lot uh, in the last few days, particularly from from Martin Lewis, and um, in terms of you know, kind of the energy saving guru. Um, about the standing charges. And so is there a fear that people, even though they may not be using gas or trying to reduce it as much as possible, even if they're not using it in a day, they're still paying to be attached. I mean, what I'm assuming you're, you're encouraging this individual to identify alternative ways of heating, but what's from an energy advocacy point of view, what are you advocating when people are saying, cut me off entirely? Well, it's really difficult because you don't want someone to not have heat in their home and, even if they did get electric heaters, electric is expensive as well. But it's difficult with the standing charge. And I know that we've had some clients who they've not been able to afford gas. And so they've not used gas for two months, for example. And then when they go to top up and they suddenly have £20 and they think, oh, we can top up and we'll have some gas, that all goes towards the standing charge that they hadn't been able to afford for the two months. So it's really, really difficult because people don't, first of all, they don't realise that the standing charge builds up. So when they finally finally do go to top up, they don't have a gas supply. Mm. It's a difficult situation to navigate and knowing what is best for that person. Okay, so Agnes, in terms of the types of people that are coming in, one thing I heard from a, a senior representative at one of the energy utilities is that they expected that the pain would be felt differently from those that are on direct debit versus those that are on prepayment meters. And the logic there was actually the prepayment meters because they're paying almost on a daily or weekly basis, when the temperatures start to rise, they won't necessarily feel the pain over the, the the spring and summer, but then they'll be hit by the April price cap in autumn and potentially the October price cap. So are you seeing a difference in in the types of people coming? Are you getting much in the way of direct debit or prepayment, Is it or is it just a real mix? We do get a lot of different people with a lot of different energy accounts and payment types, but the majority of the people that we're helping have prepayment meters. And that's often maybe because in the past they had debt. And mm. one way, often the easiest way of dealing with debt is getting a prepayment meter. Yeah. I had a client who had direct debit, which is cheaper. Plus you get a discount yeah. a lot of the time. He then had estimated bills and ended up with, from one day to the other, with a debt of £2,000. Wow. And we've managed to get funding for half of it. He's still a thousand pounds in debt. So I called British Gas to set up a repayment plan. And the one he was offered was the debt repayment would almost be as much as his his ongoing usage. And then he has a part-time job and, and his partner is taking care of the kids. So he couldn't afford mm. that at all. Like So the solution so was we not agree- a solution in, yes. in, in that in that respect. So so in this case he got a prepayment meter. Mm. Um, because that was the only thing he could afford. Yeah. And then that's the case with a lot of people. So it's a lot of people who just have such a low income yeah. that they can only pay those small chunks every week yeah. of money. But what actually happens is that a lot of them pay so much money every week. So once you add it up, it's in- extremely expensive. Yeah. Are you seeing people coming in unable to pay energy bills but that's, again, this is before the price cap rise. We, we must make this clear because all the other pressures that are already bearing down on them already. So they're unable to pay energy bills as is pre-price cap rise because of other price. I mean, I mean, off the top of my head, I'm thinking food, petrol. Is this something you're you're picking up? Because the concerning thing is 
if they're feeling this level of pain now, what will things look like in a month's time? Yeah, definitely. Uh, we do food bank referrals and the amount of referrals we've been doing in the past two months has increased so, so much. And also sometimes when um, people are organising the repayment plan, we're having to go through all of their outgoings. And so through that, we directly see how much they're having to sacrifice in other areas of life in order to be able to afford their fuel. And also I wanted to go back to a question you asked Agnes a minute ago, just about the difference between sort of maybe how direct debit versus mm. um, prepayment and how that we might see the effect. And I was also thinking the same because with direct debit, you know, it's more spread out. So they're they're not going to feel the hit as much, yeah. but it will become sooner. Whereas maybe with prepayment meters, because the temperatures are getting warmer, it would maybe be around the winter time. But the problem was Lucy, um, our colleague, was just saying earlier, it's meant to be the coldest April we've got coming. Yeah, okay. So with a cold April, the prepayment meter people, I think they're going to really feel the price increase on the first week. Well, yeah. And, and as we sit here, so it's not yet April, but we looked out the window and saw a few flakes of snow, which, you know, some people might look out the window and think how pretty, but actually it's potentially a, you know, a, a warning of things to come. And it could be a very tough April um, if, if the temperatures don't pick up. Um, I wanted to ask, what challenges do you face in terms of the support you can provide? So there's only so much South Seas as a community organization can do. Obviously, you're doing a fantastic job with, with the tools that you have available. Where, where do you see the limitations in terms of what you can do? And, and what, what kind of support do you think we now need to match the level of the challenge that we're likely to face? It's... It's really tricky. Um, I think there are a lot of really great organizations who do similar type of work as we do. And we do occasionally refer people to Home Energy Scotland or to Citizens Advice. We tend to not refer that many cases, even when they're really complex. Because a lot of the people, a lot of the clients that we help have very specific and difficult circumstances. A lot of them aren't necessarily comfortable talking on the phone for various reasons. It could be health, it can be language barriers. It's people who might not be good at mm -hmm. making appointments or like remembering when they are supposed to call someone. So a lot of people just really need to sit down and have a conversation with someone that they might know or recognize. Like even we've been here for half a year and we already know a lot of our clients yeah. really well. That level of personal support is just something that we can't really, it's very difficult to refer to other organizations. Okay. I think that speaks to the value of a community organization because what you're saying is first and foremost, the community requires somebody that they also recognize as a member or part of that community to be able to connect and to to open themselves up to support is is that is that what you're saying or am I misinterpreting? Yeah. No, absolutely. I think that's it. That's a huge thing, and there definitely is a mistrust to some of the public um, government level organisations or to the council uh, because it's the those are the organisations where people rely on for their for the benefits that they might experience uh, cuts in or they can have all sorts of other problems. So I think it is. A very particular experience for us because the people who come here, like we can tell that they have 
a level of trust. And I think we have mm. feel a strong sense of accountability to them because we see them. We see them when we walk down the street, yeah. even when we finish work. Okay. I mean, that, that familiarity is, and trust is so important. But I'm also taken with something that um, you were both referring to last time um, we spoke and I was in the office a couple of weeks ago and we were talking to um, Scottish Minister Patrick Harvey, um, co-leader of the, the Green Party. Um, and you're making reference to the difference, I guess, between support for harm reduction, i reducing the harm of these energy prices or the pain, pain reduction might be a better way of referring to it, versus pain prevention. So I'm aware as part of your role as energy officers, you may make home visits or, or phone calls to to individuals to talk about the types of solutions they could they could employ in their homes. Um, I wondered if maybe Poppy, if you could talk a little bit about that, but also what more you you think we could be doing in terms of pain prevention. What what resource would you like to have available to you to help these people not go through another period like this this coming winter and the one after? So I would say that when I first started here, what I learned was our goal at South Seeds is to. Um, have a client and we do have the financial supports we have like prepayment vouchers for example but our goal was and is to provide people with energy advice and or solutions that they can do that will help them in the longer term to reduce their energy bills and the the financial support we can offer it would be amazing if that was sort of short-term support in a period whilst they're they're you know trying to get that longer term mm. solution Unfortunately, due to the increase of prices and the lack of other resources we have, that's yeah. not always necessarily the case. I would say, for example, with Home Energy Scotland, we can refer some people. And I know last time we were discussing that it's quite difficult with the eligibility. So you have to be on a certain type of benefit mm, to get a yep. referral. So it would be really, really great to have other resources or other grants to help people make their homes more energy efficient. Okay. I think one big challenge for us is that a lot of the external resources that we can access, whether it's vouchers or funding or debt relief, is changing all the time and it tends to be really short term. So we don't really know how long it's going to be there how much it's going to be even with the vouchers which are usually planned to be like an amount of money that's available for a year sometimes eight months passes and then the funding's up and then we can't use those vouchers so we can't even plan very well how we will be able to support people next winter we need to know that now because yeah. we need to know how many vouchers they can have in November. Yeah. Because if they can only have three, then we shouldn't apply for them now. That, that, that's really important. So proactive support rather than reactive support. I mean, in yeah. the sense that we kind of know what's coming down the tracks. And then another example of that is that we have recently had access to funding from Home Heating Advice. And that's been a different kind of funding, which has been available to any client who needed support to avoid fuel poverty but that was available for three months and that's ending tomorrow mm. and we have not heard anything we don't know of any other funding that's going to be available so we are constantly on the lookout for financial support yeah. and resources but it changes all the time it's short term it makes it really difficult to make 
action plans for the years ahead about like what we are wanting to see for yeah. our community. No, that's an extremely important point. I think we'll have to pause there. I know we could talk about this much longer, but I'm hoping we can check in with you in a few weeks' time or a couple of months and to see how the price cap has, has affected people. Hopefully, given your excellent work and hopefully some of the support that's been promised elsewhere, the pain isn't as bad as predicted. But we will touch base again. And thank you for your time and, and thank you for all your help. Thanks to Agnes and Poppy from Glasgow South Seeds, both energy advisors and both rushed off their feet. We're going to digest that now with our guests who will help us to zoom out from Glasgow South Side to look at the picture across Scotland and across the UK more broadly. Hi there, I'm Fraser Scott. I'm from Energy Action Scotland. My name is Danielle Butler. I am Senior Research and Policy Officer at National Energy Action. Very warm welcome to Local Zero, Fraser and Danielle. Uh, obviously, Fraser guest, different from Fraser host. We're going to have to make that very plain throughout the, the preceding chat. But uh, a warm welcome on this very historic day. Whilst we're recording, it's the 1st of April. It is Price Cap Rise Day. And you've just heard um, a discussion that I've had with Poppy and Agnes from South Seeds. So they've been reflecting upon their experiences of dealing with uh, citizens, uh, the local community who are coming in, who are really struggling to pay their bills. This was even before the price cap rise. So why don't we begin with Danielle? What, what, what were your reactions to Poppy and Agnes's experiences? Is this something you've heard before or, or not? Yeah, uh, absolutely. In, a, in another life, I worked on the front line. I was an advisor for Citizens Advice. And I've got to say, um, that was sort of through the 2012 welfare reform. Um, so through the, the bedroom tax and, and introduction of universal credit. And um, things felt tough then. I have absolutely no idea how advisors on the front line are handling the situation now because the as we're hearing sort of from a number of different organizations is we're rapidly running out of tools in the box to support people and um, the mechanisms that are available are just not going far enough and I think Poppy and Agnes kind of hit the nail on the head with that so I don't need to explain that in any further detail but um, yeah really limited means to support people but within that advisors on the front line are are continuously and consistently going above and beyond and um, yeah, doing a pretty heroic job right now to support people in crisis. Yeah. I mean, they, they it was extremely full on just sitting in that office, watching them work. It is uh, fifth gear all day long. Mm-hmm. Fraser, experiences. I mean, what were your reflections on, on, on what Poppy and Agnes had to say? I think the story they have to tell is pretty tragic, to be perfectly honest. I mean, they're having to help an awful lot of people every single week. And what was coming across to me was how difficult it is now to help people, to help people because demand has increased. I think they, I think they said that the wait times that they have to see them have gone from about a week to three weeks. And, and this is still a relatively small part of the city of Glasgow that they service. And yet the demand had been so great so recently and all prior to the 54% increase that we've endured today. They're doing a tremendous job. I mean, they are doing a tremendous job. It almost feels awful to say that they're doing a tremendous job. I wish they didn't have to. I really do wish they didn't have to. I I wish there was no need for them in in a lot of ways. I wish they were able to spend their time helping other people do other things than deal with this kind of issue. Because we, you know, we, we ought not to have this kind of issue in the 21st century, but we do. They work for a great organisation as well. You know, South Seeds is a, a tremendous local organisation with a very unique approach, a shop front, which is so important for walk-in. Uh, and they demonstrate, I think, the value of face-to-face incredibly well. And I will say, 
they are two of our fuel poverty uh, heroes. Two of Energy Action Scotland's fuel poverty heroes this year, sitting alongside uh, Martin Lewis, who's also one of our fuel poverty heroes this, this year. But along with other great support in places like Paisley, where the Housing Association provide tremendous support to their tenants and to the wider community. And similarly in Dundee, Hillcrest Housing Association do a very similar job there, again, with not just their tenants, but providing support to the broader community. But it's just so difficult, so difficult to supply the right expertise and support. And I think as Danielle said as well, you know, the tools in the toolbox are are largely exhausted. I mean, I, I feel really inadequate these days when people say, what can I do? And I have to say, honestly, very little. Or the impact that you will have is little. I wish it was more. Yeah. A lot of the stories that are coming across, a lot of the work that these guys are doing, the expertise that they have, are super complex, really, really extensive knowledge. Um, but they're playing such a key function in those communities, like you say, Fraser, where, with a shop front, with building trust, with being an actor within this sort of massive process that a lot of people maybe feel like they can trust over, say, a local authority or whoever it might be. Do you think we're talking enough about supporting people working in energy advocacy as a sort of key to the crisis today? Is it something that we're we're doing enough to support? Obviously, we're all going to agree here, aren't we? We're going to say no because we all work in this space. Yeah. Without a doubt, we're going to say no. But, you know, when you go, Daniel, you, you've got that more recent first-hand experience compared to me, I feel as if I'm I'm somebody who talks on the radio occasionally. Oh gosh, not at all. No, so I am. Um, yeah, it's been it's been a number of years now, and actually, I feel like in a slightly um, uncomfortable but privileged position to be researching in this area now and kind of trying to communicate on that on a bigger scale rather than dealing with the, the sort of the fighting fires day in day out where you know they're exhausted they're exhausted at the end of the day by not being able to offer solutions and and get on with the job of providing advice and support and information that kind of makes a difference but I think um kind of touching on some of the research I've done in the last couple of years and particularly um my doctoral research which tried to understand the experiences of energy advisors working on the front line was around this their work being dominated by crisis and the clients that they see and the work that they do actually wanting to tap into these things around net zero or energy saving or energy awareness and it's it's not a lack of engagement or interest um actually it's just dominated by crisis you are just fighting fires in front of you and so I think Fraser mentioned about the wait times going one week to three week and and the kind of conversations that you're having with people are not always the conversations that they want to be having but the conversations they have to be having and so yeah it kind of goes back down to that message of we simply cannot do more with what we have right now so that's householders that's the advocacy services on the front line that's health services everybody is feeling the squeeze tighter and tighter nobody more so than householders but that that squeeze is getting tighter in the short term in the absolute short term immediate term we need money we need crisis support we need funding support right now we need to give people breathing space because they cannot feed themselves they cannot feed their children they cannot they will not keep warm this winter they will not keep well so we need that immediate breathing space that funding has to exist and it is wholly inadequate what is being offered at the moment so for those at the very extremist end they're facing sort of a third to a half of their uh, their weekly incomes or their monthly incomes being absorbed by this there's simply no wiggle room there wasn't wiggle room before there isn't now so in the immediate we have to address that the money is not there. We need to give people breathing space so that they can have conversations about the medium and the longer term. In the medium to the longer term, we need to think about advice as a as an essential part of all of this, you know, the transition to net zero. It's not a mechanism to support it. It's a core component of it. This is a people 
based problem solution endeavor journey that we're on so it has to be a part of it written in and built in and then we have to think about fabric and all of that sort of stuff so we have to think first about in the medium to the longer term how we keep those schemes going around how we make walls work and make buildings work properly for people but how we how we do that in a sensible way whilst being able to embed that crisis support it can't be one or the other we absolutely need both operating in tandem at the moment and and it's up to the us lot to sort of keep the pressure on around that and to keep the evidence base there and to keep expressing the importance of having those two things operating together Um, and then in the longer term I think there's tons of stuff that's like already exists that we can just amplify and celebrate more so there's brilliant things at community levels schemes and organizations that exist trust is there the partners and the institutions and the organizations that people like talking to about these sorts of things they exist so we celebrate them and we amplify them we also think about education we're on the cusp of sort of having this climate energy buzz in schools and the younger generation so in the much longer term we kind of amplify that and and that kind of chimes back into some of the rights based stuff as well we equip younger people with what they need to know about their rights when it comes to housing health energy and all of this sort of stuff um so yeah that's kind of the short the medium and longer term but without the breathing space in the next six months there's very little we can do to support the most vulnerable who are going to suffer tremendously um, and there's very little we can do i think on that daniel something you all of that all of that important but some something that you pick up on there is the the, the net zero question as well right we're we're hearing a lot of however however much manufactured sort of conflict between a lot of these things that are happening just now. And I wonder, Fraser, if you see a role for energy advocacy services in supporting that kind of zero carbon, low carbon transition, either from the transition perspective itself, but also from, from protecting people who may be at, at risk of being excluded or left behind in the process. Yeah, for me, I mean, there's no argument from me about the need for a transition to a low carbon society. How we get there I think that's still up for a lot of debate. But the one thing it should never do is alienate people. It shouldn't uh, leave people behind in positions which are just simply unconscionable positions. You know, people with health issues left behind. You know, we're not we're not able to sacrifice people on this journey to to this net zero position. And actually, our, see, our few poverty ambitions, we're meant to solve that before we even get to our net zero targets. You know, we've got 2045 for our net zero target. We've got 2040 for our fuel poverty target. Albeit we've missed our fuel poverty target in 2016. And at this point in time, really concerned that given the upturn in our fuel poverty figures, that will be very hard for us to recover unless something much more dramatic happens, dramatic intervention. So, you know, I, I think our advocacy services at this point are trusted. And I think that's important. I think you were touching on that. Who, are they, who values them? Everybody who uses them values them. But whether anyone else values them beyond this point, I think is pretty debatable. Otherwise, they wouldn't bounce from one-year funding to one-year funding to temporary funding, whether it's energy redress scheme, spending half their time chasing money. And probably all those organisations have got a person who's dedicated to chasing money rather than a person dedicated to helping more people. And for me, that's always a waste, and that's a typical third sector thing. We have it across across the board. We don't have a mechanism that rewards the support that those advice services provide. You know, in a normal market sense, there's a profit. So what's the profit that comes from the third sector is that, well, they reduce other costs elsewhere. 
they reduce costs. So there's an absence of costs in the National Health Service. But you, that's not a profit that those local organisations can share in. What they have to do is go around and try and chase money year after year after year. And and they're not, therefore, able to, if you like, if you like in a horrible sense, capitalise on the support that they provide, the transformation that they've provided, because the transformations they've provided are needed to those individuals and those households. They couldn't afford to pay for it on the basis that benefits will accrue later, because that's just not how it works. And that's not how the sector's motivated. Yeah, absolutely. So there's been a peeling back of this, particularly in the English setting. I know that Scotland still has some uh, energy efficiency advice centres or some form of them in, in one guise or another, but they, they don't exist in England anymore. And it's been stripped back basically to to an online service, a, a website, Simple Energy Advice. Other than the, the huge network of local organisations that we're aware of that are providing these services, but mapping that landscape and understanding what's happening there. And, and like Fraser mentioned, that shifting landscape year on year around what that service is trying to do or aiming to do um, is really, really tricky. Um, so there is a there is a role. And we also know from that work that, that the cascading model, so understanding how when we train frontline workers in a, ver- a variety of different sectors, those of us who work specifically in energy, how that can reach much more people. So, um, you know, sort of 15 to 20 people. So I'm thinking of models like NEA Deliver, so where we train different organisations, but also things like the Big Energy Save Network. There are lots of different organisations that offer offer this model out where that that, that broadens that reach and lets organisations get on with what they do best in the communities with that added benefit of understanding what's going on in terms of energy and that, that energy expertise. Um, and then often signposting back into some of the services that we're all familiar with that are energy focused. Yeah, and sort of the impact of that is, that is really significant because you're kind of letting those organisations that are rooted in the local community, that know the local area and the the forms of support and the sorts of issues that people face, uh, that expertise is embedded. Um, but sort of coming back to the example I think you're talking about, Matt, was around having that national coordination and that national oversight. So that's really helpful for things like um, things like the Big Energy Save Network is really great in that sense that it's locally led, but nationally coordinated. And that gives that um, opportunity for uh, uh, a much wider evaluation of sort of schemes like that so you can start to understand the impact that it has and make the case for it. It's also about what areas that don't have these advocacy services because the community organisations aren't there yeah. for whatever reason. I mean, there's a whole host of reasons why you may or may not have one of these organisations in a, on a particular street, in a particular neighbourhood. But if they don't exist and the state isn't playing the role, then who do you turn to? I think you're right there. I mean, we all know citizens' advice bureaus for, as an example, but in, in Scotland, it's only... I think it's 29 local authorities in Scotland have a Citizens Advice Bureau. So there are some three local authorities that don't have one, which is surprising given the scale of need that is out there in the community for people with complex problems. It's not, you know, it's not all about energy bills and stuff. There are lots of other reasons why people go to Citizens Advice for support. But as a kind of measure of of that, it's it's not a fantastic pattern. And every one of them is an autonomous, independent organisation which has to chase its own money. You know, it's not funded in a central way. They they share a, a brand and a data set and a you know and a and a common approach, without a doubt, but they're still independent of each other and they have to go through the same process. But the same process that many other specialist local organisations, whether that's somebody like South Seeds or organisations like um, Greener Kirkcaldy and Fife um, or Ali Energy in Argyll and Butte or Tynish Gal in the Western Isles, 
but there are reasons why they exist that are very local and specific. But there's also, for me, another dimension to this is communities of interest beyond the geographic. You know, there are trusted organisations for some groups of people because the, the reason they trust the organisation is to do with something else. It's maybe a condition that they have. That's the organisation that's ever helped them the most, that one. That's where they'll go for advice or first signposting. It's important to build the capacity of organisations and, and ensure that they have the ability to signpost correctly or if they're going to provide that detailed advice. People need to have a, a qualification of some description. They need to be have met a standard that you can confidently go, that's expert advice, that's the right advice. Not only do I trust them, I trust that advice now. And you, you know what, I'll come back after that because if that follows through and it works for me, I'll advocate for the organisation and more people will go there for advice. But that's a bit of a circle because you think, well, that's just going to drive more people in. And what we need to have is a much better support network that recognises that there are self-helpers out there, but you don't want your self-helpers to come in and clog up the routes that others who simply don't have the capacity to do that. And never mind the number of people who we don't ever, ever get to because they simply don't come forward because there's still huge stigma in all of this. I think I spoke to a colleague at one of the support organisations just the other day and they said they'd helped nearly half a million people over a number of years but they could barely get a single person to step forward and speak about their experiences because there's such stigma. And when they can get someone to speak, it tends not to be a family because families definitely try to avoid the stigma of stepping forward and admitting that they have, they have issues. You know, they want their children to be um, talked about in school. and all. There are loads of reasons why it, it's difficult. You know, and, and when you don't have some of those really human stories to bring forward, that, that support, it's so important for the, the sector that provides vital, I'll say life-saving support. It's it's just so hard to get it valued in the way that it, it's perpetuated without the complexity of ridiculous uh, one-year funding pots and you know trying to know a landscape that changes every couple of weeks. It, it, it's a terrible place to be in, in so many ways from that side of it. It's a hugely rewarding place to be at the same time for all the benefit that you bring to people. Can I just add um, just a brief thing? So there's a, there's a couple of things again from sort of uh, sort of research insights. Um, so within that context, yes, accurate and um, up to date because we know that the landscape is ever shifting. Advice is is critical, um, but I would argue that there's a real role for us to better understand what's going on in in informal spaces and settings. So what happens in local community groups that aren't about energy? What happens between neighbours and friends and relatives? Because we know from things like uh, benefit sanctions that there are networks of supports happening in high rises or local small rural communities where people aren't reaching out. And that taps into exactly what Fraser was saying around these huge swathes of not yet engaged with, not yet supported communities far afield, that's not necessarily that they aren't accessing support. It's that the support that might be available in that already stretched community is just being spread even thinner. And they're finding ways to survive without tapping into those formalized things. So I think there's a real power in that. And, and I guess the reason I would argue for that is that if we're going to bring people meaningfully into advice and support around this, we need to understand where their meaningful conversations are happening. And if that level of trust is 
through word of mouth with relative friends, neighbours, then that's a really important thing that we need to not disregard altogether. And we need to be going to the spaces where those conversations are happening. So the advice that we're talking about with Agnes and Poppy and the organisations we're familiar with, it's really top notch, all in, everything we got, work beyond our daily hours, mostly volunteer led, you know, give it everything we've got to make people's lives better. But actually there's a lot of advice and support that happens where there is enormous policy and practical gains to be made around preventing reducible demand. So getting it right first time, you know, we all know where people might call first if they've got a problem with their energy bill. And often things like repayment uh, levels of debt will be set far too high. That person makes every sort of uh, uh, admirable attempt to try and repay that amount of money that they've been they've been asked to repay by whoever uh, as their first point of contact. And then they will end up at the doors of a local organization or their family members. And that's where a realistic assessment of their balance and their budget might be done. And that could have been got right first time. Um, and that's what leads to people having that lack of trust and being left in really destitute situations. So that's just one example, sort of debt repayments. But there are numerous examples when we look at, at advocacy and support in the context of energy, debt, cost of living crisis and all of that sort of stuff where we could be preventing reducible demand by getting it right first time. I, I, I certainly had a, a question about the role of online energy advocacy. And I think there's there's something that I've seen happen in the advent of this price cap rise. And in preparation to this, Martin Lewis, many of us will know as a kind of cost-saving uh, guru, has turned his attention almost full-time to dealing with energy bills. Fraser, uh, you, you mentioned that he's, he's one of your energy uh, champions, energy uh, fuel poverty champions. And I just wanted to, to get a sense of how how the advocacy space is evolving and innovating. I mean, he's been dropping little videos in, which have been retweeted tens of thousands of times. People reading this. This seems to be the number one channel for advice and support, rightly or wrongly. So, I, yeah, I don't know, Fraser. Maybe because you've you've given you've given him a, a particular gong. You know, should we be relying on this? We have given him a recognition of the tremendous effort that he has made over the last period to communicate the complexity of issues to a mass audience. I think organisations like ours or NEA, we, we would only ever dream of being able to reach that mass audience up until recently, to be perfectly honest. But at the same time, he's a trusted person, probably one of the most trusted people in all of Britain to give this kind of advice. And when he says something, many, many people follow. But he has a specific demographic. He's not the sort of person that everyone follows. I don't think my parents follow Martin Lewis with any great regularity and um, because they're of a generation where you know they're, they're still firmly reading the print media you know they're not on twitter they're not on facebook they're in none of those things so you know some of this stuff isn't reaching many many households that need that help that's why for me like an organization i was looking back at poppy and agnes at south seeds the fact you can walk in off the street and have a conversation is really important and you're right it's, it's important you could talk to your neighbors and friends you know, they may have heard this from somewhere else and all of this. That's that's true. But yeah, it's important that we use as many channels as as possible. You know, I don't I didn't take great satisfaction yesterday that that was an absolute shambles uh, trying to submit your meter readings. I didn't take any great satisfaction with that. Um, it just was indicative of the scale of concern that people have. And they were all doing what they were 
um, it was recommended to them to do was to take meter readings and submit them because if they didn't, the risk was they would overpay. Why should they overpay? And and if if, if I was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Prime Minister, I would see that as the canary down the coal mine. I, I would be looking at that these servers, for every single energy supplier crashed yesterday, 30, 31st of March, as a sign that this is big, really big, and really, really scary. I hope they were listening because, you know, we're going to see it again on the 30th of September. I'm sure both ourselves and NEA will be recommending that the big meter read happens on the 30th of September again because we're, we're facing yet another tremendous price increase. But we will need every single channel mobilised to get as many people ready as possible because the consequences of people failing to, to act, it's putting incredible pressure onto people, just incredible pressure. And it's unaffordable stuff. You know, it's gone from 350 a day to 550 a day. It's possibly going to go from 550 a day to 850 a day. Money people don't have. Absolutely. And Danielle, I mean, other channels, you know, what, where is the advocacy not happening at the moment in terms of channels? What, what could we, I guess we're learning a lot at the moment about what's working or not. This is, this is really fluid and unprecedented times, but are you, are you getting any lessons at the moment? Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, so certain lessons around policy mechanisms and challenges of you know exactly as I've sort of said so far around um, making that crisis support available, giving people breathing space. Like en- engagement lessons and just how, how we land this advocacy, uh, this advice. Yeah, so I think you started by talking about sort of online provision. I think there's some like really hopeful stuff, but also some warning signs in all of it. Is that we needed to expand advice it needs to keep up advice and advocacy and support needs to keep up with with the way you know like i said advice needs to be where people are where they're living out their lives and sometimes that's through facebook videos sometimes that's through you know exactly like the martin lewis the following that he has around the way in which he does it youtube videos and online and all of that is fantastic and it has a real big following that can't come at the expense of the stuff that's worked to date so in the recovery in the easing uh, the return to normal if we're even uh, gonna go so far as to say that yeah. <laughs> i've lost track of which normal we're talking about yeah. or abnormal <laughs> i am yet to come across a piece of evidence or a piece of research or any sort of insight anecdotal or otherwise or personal experience where we can't see the value in regular if it's needed but in depth in person face to face sometimes in the home always in the community support that people need for this and a range of other social issues um, related to housing, health, income and all the rest of it. That absolutely needs to stay. And I I sort of remember thinking through the crisis that we so brilliantly shifted to being able to support people online and we stretched the frontline advisors even further than they'd ever been stretched before to support people in that context. And we're now asking them to do even more in, in the context of the energy crisis, which is again, terrifying, but it comes at a real worrying potential cost that there would be the case made that we wouldn't need to go back to that provision that we knew before that works so well in some of those um, further afield communities. So rural communities or those that might not speak English as a first language, um, those that have been otherwise underserved. So some of your working class communities, um, some of those that have just been not listened to in the past. So uh, that sort of stuff is really important. So I guess I would just kind of call that no one size fits all, as with many complex social problems that uh, involve people and, you know, and all of our messy problems and our complicated lives. It needs to be multimodal. It needs to be adequately funded. It needs to be locally led. It needs to have some national um, coordination and it needs to be properly celebrated and recognised in policy, not as a, an add on, but as a, an essential component. 
so you touched on Danielle. You touched on obviously not just uh, fuel poverty, but there's a whole raft of other issues kind of bubbling up about to boil over just now with this as well, right? It's not just energy bills. It's all of the social elements that come with that. It's wider poverty. It's mental, physical health. And a lot of the work that's been done on that is is happening among, as we also mentioned before, not just energy advocacy, but mutual aid networks, uh, food poverty networks in communities. There's certainly a need, but do you think there's a way that we can go about trying to not just formalise and professionalise and support energy advocacy more, but also those other less formal networks uh, to tap into those and bring those together as groups that are working together to try and solve these massive complex issues? Yeah, and at regional levels, in some places, they do a pretty good job of this on their own. So I think they are coming together, they are mobilising. I think there's a lot of research coming out now that's looked at sort of the strength of mutual mutual aid and networks of support through COVID beyond and those that existed before, because much of the mutual aid networks through COVID were uh, pre-existing networks that provided, you know, that they just added more to their toolbox. Uh, so whether that was fuel vouchers or prescriptions or all the rest of the things that came with it. So I guess this probably comes back down to more that like a national recognition, uh, appreciation, a celebration, whether that's a recognition in policy and practice and just uh, seeing the, the value of it is and then offering support where it's needed. So I don't think it's a case of us I say us loosely, but like, you know, the people who are doing research maybe or trying to do analysis at a national level kind of going in and saying, let us evaluate what you're doing and figure out where the gaps and the research agenda or the next steps are and, and having those meaningful conversations. So citizens assemblies, like time and time again, if we've not learned anything about that process, we're, we wasted it because it was brilliant. And um, community groups, uh, whether it's around energy and energy poverty and housing or wider social issues, they're, they're pretty clued up. They'll tell you in an afternoon of a good meeting or a workshop what, what they need to support and, and move forward and, and do exactly what they're doing in a more efficient and with far reach. Yeah, yeah. Trusting trusting that, that people and organisations who are doing this stuff know what's what's best. They know what they're talking about. We always try and end, always try and end Local Zero with something of a takeaway for, for the listeners, something that they can go and do. So in terms of energy advocacy, um, Fraser, I'll come to you first. For someone listening just now going, how can I support a, a group or, or a campaign? What what do you recommend? How can they help Energy Ad, uh, Action Scotland or or anyone else? Well, I think if you're you're listening to this and you've got broader shoulders and you, you've got a conscience that thinks I could do more, then please do more. There are things you could do. Donate to local organisations, local charities, national organisations. They're all doing tremendous work. And, we, and as we've discussed, they struggle year on year with funding. And there's nothing better than the unrestricted funding that comes from generous donations from the public. So without a doubt, people could do that. And that money will always be well spent. Civil society organisations in Scotland do a tremendous job. You know, they absolutely do a tremendous job and they need your support. And if you're struggling right now, go and seek them out because they're the places you should go. Trust those organisations, get the best advice possible. And if they've helped you out, make sure you tell everyone else that you know needs help because that's what's going to work. Danielle, same question. Uh, I'm going to be greedy and I'm going to see three, but I'll be really quick. So, <laughs> <laughs> so firstly, um, National Energy Action, again, like Fraser said, if you've got broader shoulders, 
absolutely only if you are able to afford this because we recognize that many many people are not um, but we have a, a donate the council tax rebate service uh, available on our website and you can contact us and if you don't need that 150 pounds and you're uh, outraged at what's happening then feel you know it, it will go to good use in the advice service that, that, that we operate there um, sort of reaching out to thousands of people to continue that support this coming year second thing is um again if you are able to volunteer because there are umpteen opportunities in your local community right now to, to give some time back even if that's as straightforward as like a telephone befriending service for half an hour a week um, reach out find a way give what you can and then lastly and linked to that is um i think going into easter holidays half term and then into the long summer holidays before a very bleak winter for many donate food school uniforms toys gifts time anything you can just try and pick up on those local services and schemes where you might be able to give a little bit something back even if you can't give your time or your money brilliant So a huge thank you to Fraser and Danielle. Uh, really appreciate your time. I know today is probably one of the busiest days you've ever had in your professional life. So thank you for coming and you're welcome back anytime. Yeah, thanks for having me here. Thank you. Excellent. So thanks to our guests. Uh, a real um, hard-hitting episode uh, dealing with some real issues that are, are being felt across the land. Um, and you've, you've obviously been listening to Matt and Fraser on Local Zero. Um, and if you want to take part yourself in this conversation please do seek us out at local zero pod in which you can get involved with the conversation over there ask any questions provide any comments that you have on today's episode if you have uh, longer thoughts or ideas for future episodes please email us also at localzeropod at gmail.com but until then stay safe stay well uh, and we look forward to hearing from you again Produced by Bespoken Media.